0: Welcome to Black Women of History, the show that highlights stories of women in African colonial histories. I'm Victoria Lauritsen, and today we're talking about women in Guinea during colonialism and how they use dancing and singing to educate and politicize their community. If you listen to the pilot episode of Black Women of History, you will remember Bibi Titi Mohamed and her vital part in the anti-colonial resistance in what is nowadays called Tanzania. Bibi Titi Mohamed was born in 1926 in central Dar es Salaam to a Muslim family. Like many of her peers, she didn't receive any formal education, only four years of primary school. In the 1950s, she was one of those pushing for Tanganyika's independence from British rule, alongside Julius Nuyere, under the umbrella of the Tanganyika African na- Nation Union, in short, TANU. When Tanzania became an independent state, it was Julius Nuyere who was renowned as the so-called Founding Father, although without Bibi Titi Mohammed, he would have lacked an important mobilizing force that secured his success. This lack of recognition of her contribution to Tanganyika's liberation struggle resonates with a lack of recognition of women's contribution, particularly to political events and historiography in general. It is important to underline how especially the uneducated women in Tanzania were participating in the anti-colonial movement, as we have seen in the last episode with Bibi Titi Mohammed and her role in the independence of Tanganyika. In Tanganyika, especially Muslim women with basically no formal education were the backbone of the anti-colonial liberation struggle. As you will hear in a moment, this was the case in Guinea as well. This typical phenomenon, that those who have absolutely no privileges and therefore nothing to lose, are usually those most interested in change. This is a concept discussed in Paulo Freire's famous work, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed firstly published in 1968. This is because the few women who had very few privileges, which other women at the time did not have, were interested in not losing the few things and the few resources and the few rights that they did have access to. If you see other people off worse than yourself, you are grateful for the few things you do have and are even more fearful of risking their rights for the fight for change. This will become more apparent to you once I start sharing the second story of the series, Black Women of History, the story of women and nationalism in Guinea. In 1946, the Rassemblement Démocratique Africaine was founded, also commonly known as the RDA, and various you know, variously translated as African Democratic Assembly and African Democratic Rally. It was an alliance of political parties with branches in the colonies of French West and Equatorial Africa, and in the United Nations Trust territories of Togo and Cameroon. It promoted united action across colonial boundaries as a means of achieving its goals, which included greater political autonomy for the colonies and equality of political, economic, and social rights for colonies and metropolitan peoples. The RDA was a political party which was important in the decolonization of the French Empire. The RDA was composed of different political parties throughout the French colonies in Africa and lasted from 1946 until 1958. In Guinea, there was a branch of the RDA. Its critics called it a party of prostitutes, school dropouts, and divorced women. It was aggressively opposed by the French colonial administration, by the so-called traditional chiefs, who served as administrative spokesmen in the countryside, and by the esteemed notable families of Guinea. Yet this much under-acknowledged party led Guinea to independence in 1958, advancing a wave of decolonization that ultimately spread across the African continent. Although women did not help found the alliance, they did, however, become increasingly involved in the RDA's popular mobilization against the colonial system. Guinea was one of eight colonies making up the Federation of French West Africa. A turning point in the politics of Guinea came during the General Strike of 1953, which lasted 70 days. The strike included both labor and political demands. Women of Guinea had a vital role in helping the strike, through material assistance and community mobilization. This was recognized by male RDA leaders, who then decided to recruit them for the nationalist movement. Women's involvement was incredibly important to the anti-colonial struggle in Guinea. Female leaders of the nationalist movement had little, if any, formal education. They also had basically no direct contact with white people at the time or the colonizers. Guinean female militants resembled strongly their car- their counterparts in Tanganyika, as we have already talked about in the last episode about Bibi Titi Mohammed. As in Tanganyika. In Guinea, female nationalists were also primarily Muslim and unschooled. Just like in Tanganyika and their independence struggle, in Guinea, the few Western-educated women played a very small role in the anti-colonial struggle, if any. This is actually quite a typical phenomenon, as those women who have very few privileges, which other women in Guinea did not have, and of course it was in their interest to preserve the few privileges that they did have, at the time, the Rassemblement Démocratique Africaine, the RDA, listened to women's demands. No other Guinean party did this, and therefore interest in the RDA for women increased. As already mentioned, political leaders of the RDA saw the power behind women. They recognized the value which women had, what they brought to the table. Women had social relations and relevant cultural associations and RDA leaders saw what resources women in the community had to offer. The party leadership even went so far as to encourage women to challenge their husbands and to ignore their wifely duties. The RDA argued that this was all for the higher cause to end colonial rule. But this obviously resulted in upheaval and tension within the households of women in Guinea. Yet, the RDA continued to recruit women for their party. In order to attract more women, the male leadership of the RDA made demands which intended to lessen the work for women and promoted welfare of women and their families. Women in the RDA said that they received respect where they had not received respect anywhere else. This obviously underlines the appeal to join the RDA for women. As in many women's groups in African colonies, song was an essential educational and mobilizing tool for women. This was an essential tool for many who could not read or write because they could not read the party tracts or the newspapers. The songs dealt with recent political events, praised the RDA, and, most importantly, ridiculed the opposition. The lyrics were often sexually aggressive or very explicit. Their intention was to mock and shame rivals, as well as to mobilize RDA followers. When the police came, they fled, because such political activities, like singing in the marketplace, were illegal in Guinea. RDA women also served as security guards. Market women, seated behind their platters of fruit, did all-nighters at the party headquarters. They stayed up so late to be able to warn of attacks by members of rival organizations. They acted as soldiers or guards, or maybe even considered as spies on watch during secret meetings, signaling the participants and dispersing the gathering as soon as they saw police vans. Women also gathered intelligence for the party. They had countless opportunities to observe activities in the neighborhood and they informed party leaders of actions against the RDA by the colonial government or by rival parties. However, in 1954, in the aftermath of the general strike, gender norms were violated with vengeance. That year, as a result of numerous brawls between rival political parties, RDA women organized so-called shock troops in the large urban centers. Unlike female security guards, the shock troops took action against rival party members, men and women alike. RDA women fought with their hands and with clubs. As a result of their violent activities, many members were arrested and imprisoned by the colonial authorities. Although the shock brigades were not typical of women's work in the nationalist movement, They became an important reason for male anxiety over events they could no longer control. All of a sudden, many RDA men resisted women's emancipation. While some husbands supported their wives' involvement in the nationalist struggle, many did not. Wife-beating, marital breakdown, And the taking of additional, more submissive wives were common responses. Because of tensions within RDA households, the party quickly gained a reputation as a haven for prostitutes, so-called loose women and divorcees. Rival parties and the colonial administration eagerly capitalized on this image, railing against the evil of wifely disobedience. A woman's refusal to engage in sexual relations with her husband was a serious violation of a marital contract and was a good reason for a divorce. Some women left husbands who refused to join the party. Others reportedly refused to marry men unless they could present an RDA membership card. Thankfully, women did not let themselves get put down. Women continued to join the RDA with or without their husband's consent. These black women were incredibly angry. If you are wondering why, let me quote a book published last year by Elif Shafak called How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division. Quote, Anger in the face of injustice and oppression is not only a dignified human response, but often the antithesis of indifference. Although this anger of black women and the unique oppression they face, black men were scared of black women owning their power and fighting for themselves. The men's anxiety and fear of powerful women is not a new phenomenon. Even though one would think that black men understand what oppression feels like due to racism, and would therefore be interested in supporting black women in their move for empowerment, it is sadly not usually the case. Paulo Freire argues that the oppressed feel an irresistible attraction towards the oppressor and their way of life. In their isolation, the oppressed want at any cost to resemble the oppressor, to imitate them, to follow them, to become them. This is because of a system in a system of oppression, there is a hierarchy, and of course those at the bottom want to get to the top. It's because they want to have the same privileges as their oppressor. This underlines why black men did not exactly end up supporting the freeing of black women. In the last episode of this podcast, I talked about what privilege is. To refresh your memory, I will remind you that black men are more privileged than black women because they have male privilege. White women are also more privileged than black women because they are white. Again, this does not mean that black men and white women do not struggle. It just means that black men do not struggle because they are men and white women do not struggle because they are white. To put it in Sarah Ahmed's words, I am citing from her book, Living a Feminist Life, quote, This is why I describe privilege as a buffer zone. It is how much you have to fall back on when you lose something. Privilege does not mean we are invulnerable. Privilege can, however, reduce the cost of vulnerability. The unique story of oppression that black women face, in contrast to white women, is exemplified through their portrayal in media, history, and their stereotypes that still exist today. The way that black women were, and still are portrayed as, in contrast to how white European women were viewed, and still are viewed, is incredibly important for further understanding of the unique black woman experience. Maria Lugones in her work, The Colonality of Gender from 2008 argues that historically the characterization of white European women is shown as fragile and sexually passive. This is a stark opposition to the picture of non-white colonized women, including slaves. Their image was connected to sexual aggression perversion, and strong enough for any labor. Patricia Hill Collins also noted in her text, Controlling Images and Black Women's Oppression from 1991, states that black women stereotype in slavery equals all black women as sexually aggressive. This is a rationalization that was used by white men to sexually assault black slave women. This is incredibly problematic. This legitimization through fetishization of black women and colonized women is going to be vital in understanding the unique oppression black women face, which started in colonialism and still exists until today. My name is Victoria Lauritsen and thank you for tuning in to the second episode of the series Black Women of History the show that highlights stories of women in African colonial histories. You can look forward to the next episode of Black Women of History, where I will be talking about the Gurria girls and the Zimbabwean national liberation struggle and the opposing image of women in conflict regions. The image of the stereotypical strong black woman, but who in reality is still oppressed and unequal.